Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Orlin Bishop and host Michael Lerner, titled The Seventh Shrine, A Spiritual Biography Continued. This is part two of a four-part series. Welcome back to our second session with Orlin Bishop, talking about his book, which I am certain will come to be regarded as a spiritual classic among the spiritual classics of our time. It isn't yet, except by people who really know Orland or know what this is. But this is a, a great time to be present with Orland as he enters his 40th year in the United States and steps into the fullness of the teaching. Orland, I have to make very difficult decisions about what to ask you about and what to exclude oh, because okay. there's so much. It's so compact, dense in a good sense, precise. Um, so the choices I'm making are to exclude some of the easier, more external stories uh, yeah. of your work in the world, uh, of uh, the uh, story about uh, Lazar, uh, the story about uh, Plaintree itself, uh, because this is a spiritual biography. And uh, so this particular session may be one of the more difficult ones because we'll be talking about uh, Gnostic initiation and uh, about a set of people and teachings that many of you may not be familiar with. So we'll do our best to explain yeah. what it is we're talking about. But for a spiritual biography, it seems to me that this is the essential uh, path for us to take. Mm -hmm. So chapter five, Gnostic initiation, what is knowing? Uh, you start in 12th grade with an exceptional teacher who brought philosophy more consciously into my life. Technically, she taught English, but she introduced you to Greek philosophy and tragedy. And you remember a class discussion where you were talking about Socrates. Could you tell us about that conversation? <laughs> yeah, it was related to a quote um, attributed to Socrates. And it was, if human beings really knows the truth, we will pursue it. And the discussion was, one, can truth really be known? And do, is, are human beings oriented towards it? Or are we thus corrupted? And I held the point that the truth is out there, as they say, and that human beings have an inner moral capacity to find truth. And we just need um, a way, a kind of, well, we call it initiation towards it. That's not how the rest of the class saw it, because they, they, the conversation was that um, there are too many influences that corrupt us. And that is true, but that was not what he was saying. Now, of course, you're up against the entire academy and relativism of truth and knowledge of our time. Mm -hmm. 
uh, the the view, the truth, beauty, and goodness are eternal cosmological principles uh, is beyond unpopular in our time. Beyond unpopular, and but you held that, and you say, uh, I felt goodness was a choice, a decision. The others thought I was being too idealistic and metaphysical. My understanding, both then and now, is that goodness is not based on information or knowledge. Uh, I was aware that if we don't add something to our motive, then reality appears to be finished. Goodness requires an activation of this level of intention in order to bring an experience to a place where we can say it is good. Could you expand on that? Yeah. Well, it goes further. I am not my body. I'm not my feelings and I'm not my thoughts. I am my will. My will could be given to all levels of will. That is not personal. So the transcendental will could evolve its own willingness to beings whose will is to give us impossibilities to fulfill. Because it's their work to create the context and at times the content for moral imagination, which allows the goodness to come in. Goodness is not a cultural phenomenon to the degree that we can say this is how it's done. It's um, the way we use intuition. So if intuition creates a perfect connection to soul and mind, there are possibilities, yes, that it could be corrupted, but it also can be guided. It can be guided by another intuition, which is a perfect creation. See, I happen to agree with you. I happen to believe that truth, beauty, and goodness are, in some sense, um, eternal principles, both in us and in the cosmos. Uh, and it is completely at odds <coughs> with all the academic teachings of our time. And their principles at the level of intuition. Yes. Right. Not at the level of conceptual. No, I agree with that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things that makes your spiritual path unique and one of the things that you bring to it that very few other people bring to it is your intensive study of black Gnosticism. And you write, in 1990, I attended a discussion group at the Aquarian Spiritual Center in Los Angeles. The group was facilitated by Dadisi Sanyika, is Sanyika. that correct? Mm -hmm. uh, a senior member of the Black Gnostic Studies Program of the Center. Uh, near the end of our session, I noticed an elderly gentleman coming down the stairs. He chose to sit at the back and was attentive. He said nothing but imbued a strong presence. At the end, Dadisi told us, told us that he was Dr. Alfred Ligon, the founder of the Aquarian Spiritual Center and Black Gnostic Studies Program. He founded the Aquarian Bookshop in 1941 and introduced the metaphysical disciplines to the African-American communities in Los Angeles. Later, he founded the Aquarian Spiritual Center and the University of Occult Philosophy. I learned that Dr. Ligon was a member of the Sabian Assembly and Brotherhood of Light, 
both theosophical schools and that he had studied with Mark Edmund Jones, who founded the Sabian Assembly. Now, I happen to be aware of, of these references of yours. Dr. Ligon was trained in theosophy and as a metaphysician. He formed a process of study and practice that he called Black Gnosticism, an integration of Egyptian mysticism and African Gnosis. His intention was to reconstitute the ancient mystery traditions into a new discipline of study consisting of the appropriate social understanding for the African-American experience. The tradition of Gnosticism involves exploring knowledge systems. Dr. Legon, am I pronouncing his name yes. right? Considered black Gnosticism to be about the hidden or inner teachings. He drew from these teachings of the religious and symbolic systems of the Piscean Age, or the Age of Christ, covering a period of the past 2,000 years. The 12 Piscean schools can be traced to 12 mystery schools dealing with religious and symbolic systems underlying civilization. The Aquarian Spiritual Center was created to prepare for the Age of Aquarius the emerging astrological age. And you go on from there. Um, so, and then you became uh, his successor. You became his successor, which you don't say directly in the book. Yeah. You say in the book, others carried it on, but you don't say it. And part of, <clears throat> part of what I am obliged to do Yes. is to follow up the hints that yeah. you mm -hmm. give us here mm -hmm. because your modesty and a certain occult tradition of indirection uh, is, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. is uh, wise and gracious and humble. Nonetheless, you've given us the hints. And so my responsibility is to follow up on the hints and to ask you about them. Wow. <laughs> You're a good reader, Michael. <laughs> Yeah, um, <clears throat> the structure of, of different levels of training in Gnosis is continuity. Not only of the, um, the legacy within the tradition itself, but the continuity of communication between the teacher and students as they move to different levels of life and death. And one of the principles uh, around the Isis mysteries, the Aset mysteries, is the reconstituting of collective memory. And that can go as far back as he did to an entire age. 2,000 years, he found who were the influencers of these mystery schools and traced their practices in current time. And the, the various... Um, Occult lessons were designed to instruct um, the processes of initiation towards finding one of those 12, or as many of those 12, and let them guide. So in, in, after I found one, I was promoted <laughs> to sit with him while he was lecturing. And the idea was, um, while he was communicating within one of those streams, he would stop and I had to finish his sentences. So the cognition had to be at least appropriate to having the same inspiration from the source that he's speaking from. 
in order to continue not only his thought, but the work as it continues on. So we did that for five years. For five years? I thought you studied with him for 13. Yeah, but this particular practice of mutual cognition. So he had a 21-year curriculum and you studied directly with him for 13 years. Until his death. Until his death. And then he left you as his successor. Well, um, we had an argument about it first. Um, it was. I came in a dream, in which a codex, a book, um, uh, was in a cabinet that he often asked us, "Don't open my cabinets and my books because these are rare collections for him." And one of the dreams that came, um, he and I were together, and I. Um, he told me to take the book out of the cabinet. And so I took it down and he said, put it into that tree across the way. And I thought, there's mud and you know all kinds of things. I said, this is a rare book. You can't just put it out there. He said, put it out into the tree. And I said, okay, but I will keep an eye on it. And then I opened the book and it was autographed to him from the King of Jordan. So I turned to him, and I'm now in a dream, and I said, I didn't know you know the King of Jordan. And he laughed. And I closed the book and put it into the tree. And then um, the dream ended. So I now was telling him about the dream, and he said, what, what do you think? I think you've you're giving me something to do, and he like it was no confirmation. Like, tell me more. What what the dreams? And I, I so I had to describe what the King of Jordan meant metaphysically, which is uh, uh, crossing the generational space. So it's a knowledge of um, you know the Jordan River, the idea yeah. that um, after one. Process is finished, you cross the river. And I said, well, it's, it's not only uh, crossing the river, but crossing the spiritual, going to the next level of the spiritual task. And he said, okay. And Which that, is the story of Israel. Right. Yes. Crossing the Jordan. Crossing right? the Jordan and co- completing Wrestling the 40, with the angel. And completing 40 years and, in the wilderness. And being told... You are now Israel, which means struggling with God. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So that was all part of the dream. That was all part of the dream. Yeah. And in 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 um, gnosis, we have to take it to a symbolic level. Yes. Always to start. Of course. Then trace it back to the literal. I understand. Yeah. Okay. So he mentored you through. 13 years of his 20-year curriculum. I said 21. I joined Dr. Ligon's school in 1991, studied with him for 13 years. He had a 20-year curriculum, mentored me through 13. There was great wisdom in how he related to me and devised my studies along what has been called the seventh ray path, formulated by Alice Bailey's book, The Rays and the Initiations, a treatise on the seven rays. It is called the path of absolute sonship. 
The path involves the working of group karma and group consciousness and creating social tasks through which a group destiny can be realized. It is also, as you mentioned, the path of Isis in the process of putting back together the separated parts of Osiris. Dr. Ligon referenced the path for me by integrating the term cosmotherapy or healing through love. The curriculum involves a practice of service to those spiritual beings that are holding the ritual laws for the prophecies that the people possess as potential within themselves. This practice is centered on the rites of ceremonial order and ritual. It involves mental, psychic, and moral disciplines for making contact with the spiritual world. For more than 60 years, Dr. Ligon played a significant role in the lives of many black cultural leaders, artists, and intellectuals. The main branch of his school was named the Pascal Beverly Randolph Lodge, which we've talked about, the founder of the first black Masonic Lodge, in recognition of the architect of the Rosicrucian movement in the United States and the cultural avatar for the emancipation of African slaves. Dr. Ligon died in 2002 at the age of 96, and then, as you say, the school remains active through the practitioners who have chosen a path of service. So again, in humility and appropriate, uh, and appropriate um, indirection, uh, you've described it that way in the book, but there was more to it. Yeah, the... <clears throat> I, I, I discovered how to keep track of him in the other world. And in dreams, it would, he would come and invite me to walk with him, and we would just walk into light. And then we dissolve into the light. But that was the practice of the um, Hermetic Brotherhood. The cognition was, can you dissolve everything that you know yourself to be until it becomes light? And within that light, it would be like a star portal. One can then traverse time and encounter beings in the light. And so um, that was a couple of the, the, the ways in which we encountered each other. There was no verbal communication. I understand. Yeah. So... He focused your studies around Alice Bailey's work. And I happen to have her complete Mm -hmm. works Mm -hmm. uh, given to me actually by Marion Weber, who's a friend of ours. And uh, so it's like 15, 16 volumes, all little blue books like this. Um, And I want to read to us all uh, what the seventh ray is. In other words, the seven rays are different paths, uh, each one. Do you know them by heart or not? Uh, not always, no. Okay. That's, uh, well, let's years. find them. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to start by reading yeah. you the seventh ray. Seventh ray of ceremonial law or magic, special virtues, strength, perseverance, courage, courtesy, extreme care in details, self-reliance, Vices, in other words, each, each ray has vices right. that, to avoid. Formalism, bigotry, pride, narrowness, superficial judgment, self-opinion, overindulged. Virtues to be acquired. 
realization of unity, wide-mindedness, tolerance, humility, gentleness, and love. This is the ceremonial ray, the ray which makes a man delight in, quote, all things done decently and in order, according to rule and precedent. It is the ray of the high priest and the court chamberlain, of the soldier who is born a genius in organization, of the ideal commissary general who will dress and feed the troops in the best possible way. It is the ray of the perfect nurse for the sick, careful in the smallest detail. It is the ray of form of the perfect sculptor who sees and produces ideal beauty. The seventh ray man uh, will delight in ceremonials and observances uh, and so on. Um, the prime function of the seventh ray is to perform the magical work of blending spirit and matter in order to produce the manifestation of form through which life will, re will reveal the glory of God. So that's just a few of the qualities. So you must have spent a lot of time on Alice Bailey's work. No. No. <laughs> well, that's very interesting to me. Um, he did. He did. Um, my, my path was an intuitive path. Uh-huh. And so I picked up on things by picking up on what he knew. Uh-huh. And what he shared, shared in the uh, understanding. Part of what he recognized that I was doing and uh, was finding the source with what he spoke was speaking from. I did that all through my life. Oh, that's fascinating. And so I, um, the, the content of these books are not so relevant to me. I, if I ask who's Alice Bailey, Alice Bailey could be there. You'd what? If I ask who is Alice Bailey, yeah. Alice Bailey wants to be known. Hmm. In well, that's memory. fascinating. But what fascinates me about it is that so many of the terms that yes. you use here uh, are used in the Bailey work, right. you know. So the focus on service, right. the focus on love, the focus on will. Uh, so many of your formal, uh, shall I say, theological constructs mm -hmm. are completely aligned with the Bailey work, which is why I thought that you had studied yeah. Well, uh, we studied theosophy, but yeah. we studied Kabbalah, we studied Sufism, we studied other traditions as well. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, um, theosophy did not stand out as the path. 1995, I went to Dornach, Switzerland, and I went to Rudolf Steiner's temple there. And through... Uh, my own meditation work um, encountered his um, signature, if you call it the signature, mm -hmm. around, around cosmogenesis. And when I came back, Dr. Gan says, here is all of Steiner's work. He had it, but he did not teach it. Mm. And so he, for the first time, allowed me to present Steiner from his how fascinating. Yeah. Well, so that, that, had a, that had yeah. a closer, closer thing than theosophy. So it was deeper for you. It was deeper. Yeah. 
So I also went to Steiner's temple uh, in my exploration of integrative cancer therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to uh, Switzerland and to um, a, a center. I visited th- three or four anthroposophical hospitals focused on oh, cancer wow. mm-hmm. and also studied the Steiner work. Yeah. So one of Steiner's um, great teaching is, is um, uh, thinking as a path to spiritual development. Mm-hmm. The idea that the dead can come to us as thoughts mm-hmm. and that therefore we may not recognize that these thoughts are coming from the dead, but in fact we're being infused through the dead with thoughts. Do you hold that to be useful in your teaching? Yes, that's what I'm calling signatures. Yeah. Signatures are their thoughts and they could be, it's like a uh, yeah, particular quality of soul that if they're communicating, you know the signature of yeah. who is speaking. And at the same time, or about the same time that you were studying Steiner's work, and you say his major philosophical work, The Philosophy of Freedom, which clearly explains the presence of the spiritual world in each person. And for those who do not know Rudolf Steiner, he's fascinating. He started the, the Waldorf School Communities, he started the Camp Hill communities for uh, people with uh, mental disabilities. He started biodynamic gardening. Uh, he was the equivalent of Edgar Casey in the United States, who started the holistic health movement in the United States. Both of them had an extraordinary ability to read the Akashic Record, yes. and, one, and they were contemporaries. And so they are two great figures, Casey in the United States, who gave birth yeah. to the mind-body health movement, mind-body health spirit, and Steiner in Europe, uh, mm-hmm. who was often seen by people as the kind of antithesis of Hitler. Yeah. And, you know, like a profound source of light in, in Europe. Um, uh, he, Steiner, was a great student <coughs> of Goethe. Yes. And so he began his career as a great student of Goethe and then moved on from there, just yes. by way of parenthesis. But at, at that same time, uh, you became acquainted uh, as a fellow at the Center for the Study of Violence and Social Change under C. Boyd James and Dr. Lewis King with uh, the France Fanon Research Institute at Drew University. So uh, talk a little bit about how the great work of France Fanon um, influenced your journey. Yeah, wow. This is. Um, I came across Fanon's work in um, psychology studies in undergraduate school and understood that what he was pointing to had qualities of what I'm we know as the soul, not just race and culture as identity. And the 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 cent, finance center at Charles Drew University of Medicine um, was trying to re-establish a psychological paradigm of care for the souls of black folks. And of, after the 1965 riots, um, Martin Luther King Hospital, the Charles Drew University came into being to educate practitioners around the unique um, soul experiences and needs. Now, there were other, other practitioners earlier than that um, in, in the black intellectual culture that p- 
looked at what was happening with the exposed ex, post-slavery experience, the reconstruction. All of that could not happen only with the cultural life as it was um, being developed. A science had to be developed for it. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Orlin Bishop and host Michael Lerner. So Fanon was pointing to that science, but it had to include the soul, mm-hmm. not just the mind. And at, at Drew University, um, they were doing a lot around the um, post, the traumatic post-trauma issues. Um, the word resilience for me in 1980s and 90s was first discussed there in context of discovering that these communities that had gone through these kinds of experiences brought something new every time. And so that was what was being called resilience. They were looking at the phenomena of the soul expressing itself irrespective of the hardships. Fanon discovered that field of, of knowledge around that. And so that was what was building the, the, the work. It's very rare in my experience for someone to be influenced and moved by Franz Fanon and also by Alice Bailey and also by Rudolf Steiner. So this speaks to your blending or integration or synthesis, which is really unique to you in my experience. Um, When you were at the Anthroposophic Conference in Sacramento, uh, that you were invited to, um, uh, you um, the one that was a celebration of the 100th anniversary of Steiner's major work, The Philosophy of Freedom, um, you were introduced to a number of people. One was a man named Dennis Klocek, author wow. of Seeking Spirit Vision. He greeted me saying, welcome, brother. It was a moment of fellowship, of kinship, also, Rick Tarnas spoke on his book, The Passion of the Western Mind, and we know Tarnas's work well. Uh, Robert McDermott, uh, who founded the California Institute of Integral Studies and also a friend, spoke on Rudolf Steiner, and uh, Friedman Schwarzkopf, who I don't know, spoke uh, on steps to meditation drawn from Steiner's philosophy of freedom. During the workshop, I made some remarks. Friedman leaned over, listening intensely. When I finished, he was silent. Um, And then you spoke again, and Friedman was silent. I decided to say no more because you felt unsure. Later, you heard a voice calling me. It was Friedman. He came up to me, and he said, there were two moments when Holy Spirit entered the room, and those were the two moments when I had spoken. He offered me a book he was carrying. It was entitled Thinking, Feeling, a collection of essays he had translated for George Kulwind. He said there were two essays in particular he thought was meant for me. This encounter marked the beginning of a remarkable period of growth and learning in my life. What opened up for you at that time? A practical knowledge about the thinking of the heart. Mm-hmm. Kulwind was a um, Hungarian uh, philosopher, scientist, natural scientist, but he developed a technique called the Logos meditation. And the idea that one could stay present with a phenomena and take it to the meditative level. 
to dissolve it outside of its all of its finished characteristics and represent it again, say, to the beings of light. And the logos is what I communicated with all my life in a way of inner contemplation and guided my thinking to levels of, of freedom from the cultural specific contexts. And what I spoke in the room that Freedom was referencing was not the what, but the how. <laughs> so the how presented certain informations in a way in which he was able to track the influence of what I said in the room, which is more than just the room. It's like beings came into the room because of how I said what I said. I understand. And so that, that was really the practice that they were engaging with. Friedman, and you spoke periodically over the next few months, he invited me to his home for his wife's birthday and gave me a copy of his dissertation Metamorphosis of the Given, and he followed with a long handwritten letter outlining methods to use for studying it. The work was a profound initiation experience for me. We focused on the practice of dissolving the given, which Friedman defined as everything that appears in sense perception and cognition to which we give uh, attention. I was able to reconnect with early meditative and cognitive experiences and give them conscious form. Friedman taught that thinking is a creative act that's like Steiner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it allows the human being to observe a world that begins with the human process of intention and attention. Human consciousness facilitates the co-creation of the worlds of understanding and truth, allowing the spiritual world to be experienced in the stages of what becomes reality. So he was clearly a critical figure in your evolution. Yes, he was of um, German heritage, mm -hmm. um, a farmer, biodynamic farmer, and he was a Gertian scientist. So he studied in anthroposophy and, um, and philosophy and law in Germany. But his thesis uh, was um, looking at 500 years of the empiricism in consciousness in Western thinking leading up to Steiner. So he went 400 years prior to Steiner of what was causing the world to appear as it appeared, particularly in the European stream, and the errors in thinking corrupted by different motives or assumptions that left the spiritual world and only focused on the powers gained by thinking that way. Hmm. And Steiner tried in, as you said, in the philosophy of spiritual activity or philosophy of freedom to return thinking to the spiritual world as a kind of initiation through the Rosicrucian wisdom. Friedman, in turn, introduced you at a meditation retreat in New Mexico to George Kuhlman. And this was, again, a learning uh, at the heart of the workshop was the idea of the power of the word, the logos, which you've said has been at the center of everything for you. In the beginning was the logos. Um, Kulin explained how the written word holds the dynamics, the power of the spirit, and the power of meaning. Uh, 
Uh, here, the understanding of the beginning, the predisposition of the logos to begin, made its most powerful impact on my life. It made a significant contribution to the body of work I had initiated called the Genesis Pathway, a cognitive therapeutic process for mentoring the spirit of an individual to decide for a future. Could you unpack that for us? Yeah, at, at Drew University, we had the opportunity to collaborate with some psychiatrists from UCLA to um, develop uh, intervention for children who had been exposed to violence. And I introduced a cognitive pathway. Uh, we know it as love. Now, how do you put love in a form that people can practice? And I said, you know, uh, how I trained the mentors was um, don't ask them anything about their past. Assume that they have everything they need to begin towards their future. <clears throat> so it was a choice to love the person's future enough to give them what they need to mm. get there. Beautiful. And that was the, that's what we call the Genesis pathway. Mm. It's, and it was used later for children who had been experienced, who had experienced war in Kosovo and other places. The final section I'd like to cover today is your chapter seven called Ritual and the Rites of Passage. Um, and it starts with an evocation of the meaning of sanctuary. It's interesting because when, you know, we've done 215 week-long cancer health programs. Arlene Alsman is our, who's here, is the director of the cancer health program. And, um, and Oren Slasberg often describes it as the heart of Commonweal's work. We've done 215 of them over the last 37 years. Um, but when we decided that we couldn't, during COVID, do it for a little while, uh, we launched uh, a project called Sanctuary, which is our cancer health program online. Mm -hmm. And uh, it proved so valuable because there are so many people who couldn't come physically to the cancer health program that it was astonishing that it was actually possible to create a deep sense mm -hmm. of sanctuary. Uh, we actually only take six people at a time instead of eight. So it's uh, a very intensive month-long mm -hmm. process. But sanctuary has deep meaning for me, for us, for many of us. Uh, and you have a passage on sanctuary, which you could either read from if you choose or just speak about um, what your sense is of the meaning and potential of sanctuary. Yeah. I, I speak about it. Mm -hmm. It's for me as it appears now in consciousness. The space between us mm -hmm. could be developed to the degree in which, literally, realities are born. Reality is born? Yes. That this world that is finished is finished. But between you and I, mm -hmm. something else could become. Mm -hmm. We just have to agree about it. Mm -hmm. 
agreement enters, brings the human soul, consciousness soul, not the mind, the consciousness soul, into the gravitational manifesting reality of the world, of the real world. That the energies that makes matter follows thoughts. And we could give them the thoughts to create something that is needed for the world. We call it elemental beings. They appear in gardens and, and landscapes and forests, and, but also they appear at the level of the folk culture, which is the reference for our moral imagination. So the imaginations that we give enters into creation and brings in other forms of intelligences to complete the work and to, to make certain things manifest outside of nature, conceptually, um, other kinds of sciences. Because they, they, sciences follow different laws than the arts. The arts are more easily, could be reached, but the sciences are a little bit more difficult because they require uh, crossing other boundaries of the soul, <clears throat> not just the mind. And our the sanctuary space started in our mentorship work to just give a person a space to feel free without judgment and criticism. But it also evolved to be a place where we um, formulate strategies for overcoming certain limitations in the mind. Because the mind can become a sanctuary, the body as well, where foreign substances cannot live in it, illnesses cannot live in it. Intuitively, I'm just drawn to skip out of um, linear context here to the time, help me remember when, when you were asked to write a personal myth or a personal dream. Mm -hmm. And you you wrote it down. When was that? I'm just trying to remember. That was um, 1991. The, and, the second one. And you were given an assignment to. That was a preparation to go into the Aquarian Center. Yeah. Oh, for the Aquarian Center. Yes. Yes. Could you mm -hmm. describe what what you wrote down? Yeah. After after a, a short meditation, um, the image came of um, a baby that was born on the seventh lunar full moon, um, lunar eclipse. And the, the child was seventh in the generation of, of this lineage. And two weeks after the, the child was born, he was taken away and then returned 14 years later. And he came back and he was told that he had to bring the seventh shrine. And so the, 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 the community did not know what the seventh shrine was because it, it was never in their tradition of teaching, but they felt drawn to it. And he had to articulate what the shrine was to be in service to. And it was for, oh, we didn't go into the details there, but it was for the recovery of a memory that um, 
was within light that then became fragmented. And so that was an earlier myth that I wrote in high school, but uh, that's a logo and I can, yeah. In the story, a male child born this way was given the name grandfather and a female child was called grandmother. The title indicated the child was a holder of a prophecy, a deep ancestral memory that spanned many generations. This child was the seventh birth in a cycle of births occurring every 300 years, culminating in a 2100-year cycle or astronomical age. Each child represented an essential wisdom teaching that was to be brought to the community. It was the task of each of these individuals to fulfill the prophecy of erecting the shrines that symbolically represented this wisdom. My story told of how this seventh child came to initiate the seventh shrine. I did not know precisely what the seventh shrine was. And then you describe how he was taken away. My vision ended abruptly with the community setting off on a journey toward the place where the shrine was to be created. I had no idea what they would find. It would be several years before this vision would be explained to me through an African elder. So may we go to the place where the African elder explains the vision to you? Yeah, well, that is some step. I received a call from South Africa one day, and um, the person on the line was Vizuma Zulu Kredo Mutwa. And he said, you have to come to South Africa. And okay, I'm coming. I only knew of him briefly through um, a recording that was sent by him to, um, to the United States by a friend visiting from the Congo. And in it, he described the, 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 what was called such a shining path. It was the Zulu tradition of training Sangomas and Sanusis. And he wanted it to just be played. And he, nobody knew why, but in listening to the recordings, um, in it was uh, a study about the phenomenon of the moon. And the uh, wisdom behind the far side of the moon, in which uh, it's understood that um, some of the Egyptian deities departed from earth and was accommodating their dwelling from the moon. So uh, all the things from childhood where I used to go to the museum and look at this little moon rock, all of these things started to put together. And by the time I finish um, some work with the Gnostic school, um, the invitation came from him. He saw me in his dreams that I had uh, tasked to do with the prophecies that they were holding around the songs of the stars. And this ancient wisdom of the Egyptian. You know, in the oldest stories, the wisdom that created ancient Egypt came from Southern Africa. 
It also came from the moon mysteries in the old um, Atlantean epoch. And so Southern Africa held the wisdom of Atlantis that then went further up into Egypt. You're talking about Credo Mutua, am I saying it right? Yes. He says, um, Credo Mutua provided me with the rituals to bring balance to my life path. He provided the spiritual framework for understanding how to receive and utilize the ancestral guidance and medicine. It put together contexts of my life that I'm still able to draw from after those few days of Indaba. Credo Mutua, or Baba, is the last Sanusi in the Zulu tradition, the highest initiate in that cultural tradition, the keeper of the relics of the ancient priests. A Sanusi is one who embodies the total memory of the tribal imagination and who can travel time corridors of soul life, the collective consciousness of the people, one who is responsible for maintaining the archive of ancestral wisdom. As we talked serendipitously, with no forethought or planning, I told him the story of the personal myth I had written and asked him if he had heard of the seventh shrine. Baba laughed and said with evident pleasure, but you have written the story of your own birth. But you have written the story of your own birth. I asked him to tell me more. He said, yes, it is the shrine of Imani, which is the Swahili word for faith. This term was familiar to me as the seventh principle in the Ngosu Saba, one of the principles of Kwanzaa. Baba said, it is the shrine that is coming to be. There is no teaching for it. You will have to do it out of your own intention. In fact, you are already doing it. He added that I would not find any teachers to guide me because I already knew what it was about and would encounter it every time I asked for it. And so a new turn of my life began. I discovered that stories of the seven shrines existed in African lore as a way of speaking about the cycles of evolution of consciousness. Credo Mutwa explored with me the stories of the prophecies held by the elders of the Zulu people and other peoples in Africa. He told me of the great elders that were part of holding the gateways open for certain possibilities of world events that involve Africans and Europeans in South Africa and other parts of the world. He spoke of the Middle Passage and the mystery teachings about the journeys of the great waters. He spoke about the guidance that I would receive as someone who was brought to him by the ancestors to be given specific help to be part of of the work in relationship to these prophecies. He felt that many of us in America would play a role in the unfolding of the making of these covenants for the world. It's hard to follow that line because it's, um, he held, I'm thinking we passed now, going on three years and 
what he held, I wish the world was really in a different place of maturity to understand. Someone who could speak about anything at any time in the world with the accuracy of looking at the records of it in the Akashic field. And people would go, but they would only ask things that really just made interesting stories, but not prepare for deep initiation. And uh, he, will, he, he is being missed dearly from the, from the activity of direct, direct contact, but the, the preparation has been made for what he carried to be distributed. In many esoteric traditions, indirection is a critical dimension that hints are scattered, mm -hmm. but placed in a book like this so that they're not directly connected. So it is up to the seeker to bring the hints together. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem to me an accident that Dr. Ligon focused on the seventh ray in teaching you, that your vision was a vision of the seventh sun, that the seventh sun is part of a long tradition of what the seventh sun means, that uh, the seventh shrine, the shrine of Imani or faith, is the faith to, is the shrine to be created, and that you were quietly indicated as someone who would contribute to the development of the seventh shrine of faith, which was a shrine that had not been created yet, was needed, and that there were no teachers and that you would have to find your own way and that you would need to do that through your own intention and mm -hmm. that, in fact, you were already doing it. A lot of the work I did around futures of money had to do with a conception that the agreement that we call money is one of the last stages of a gift from the deities to humanity. Actually, 2,000 years ago, it, it, it comes in the book of Genesis, where God said, let there be light. The same conception of fiat that gives the principles about the creation of the world is the same methodology to create the agreement field we call money. Now one leads towards a spiritual fulfillment of the human life and the other leads towards materialism of the human life. They're not supposed, was not supposed to in those 2000 years go in separate realities. The priesthood who understood creation started to divert the willingness from serving the light to serving the material goals that the light provided. And one of my tasks was to re-establish the spiritual realities of money as a cognition, as a sense of integrity that we do not 
continue to misuse material intelligence. Now, how does it feel to you since you have this experience of who you are, your purpose in life, the calling to establish this seventh shrine of Imani? Do you feel that, do you feel this as a burden? Do you feel it as a responsibility but not a burden? Are you able to carry it with peace and joy? Or is it a hardship to carry it? All of those combined. It used to be a real hardship until about a few months ago. I had to dissolve the last, the last phase of it, which is that it's my destiny. Mm-hmm. And I completed that. It's, it's not just my destiny um, to do it. Um, here's the thing. One of the biggest collaborations, real authentic collaborations, happened to create the James Webb Telescope. And the James Webb Webb Telescope. Yeah, yeah. They said 10,000 scientists to point to the stars. Credit Mutwa could have told them what's out there. Mm-hmm. I, heard those, I heard those stories about those stars from him. It will take them probably another hundred years to interpret what they might be seeing with only physical conceptions. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Orlin Bishop and host Michael Lerner. They're looking in the wrong direction for the stars. The hermetic principle and what's in these books, what's as above, so below. All of those phenomena that's out there is right between us. We can host and create a hospitality for everything that we're looking for out there between us. And it comes in with rich pictures of what it really, not only what it is, but what it means. Because we cannot do that looking, searching without meaning. We're only gonna find more stuff. And now it's like, okay, another galaxy. Well, what are we gonna do with it? You know, put it on a picture. That's not what's out there. We're still looking for beings. But the beings are right here that could make those beings reveal their signatures. We don't want to host. There's so many pieces here, but let me just take one, and then I want to talk about the seven shrines. You said your name, Orland, means going down into the earth to mine or bring up the precious ore. Yeah. In the seven rays, the seventh ray has to do with minerals. Isn't that correct? Yes. So when your teacher, Dr. Ligon, worked with you on the seventh ray for the seventh son, who is to discover the seventh shrine, it was the mineral ray. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Yeah. So here's the, 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 the in, in the earth is a sun. Yes. In that sun is a philosopher's stone, or it used to be called a philosopher's, a philosopher's stone. stone. 
So the idea was journey into the interior of the earth and through rectification, recover the philosopher's stone. The rectification is the fact that I am not my body. To create the reverse ritual, to returning to the sun, one has to dissolve the thing that is in the way of the sun. And it used to be, I behold the sun at midnight. That was one of the hermetic principles. How do you see the sun at midnight from the soul? And so you go into, it's really still a journey into the soul. No, I understand. And, and that's where a certain kind I, of I have to say that, where's Jennifer Stoll right now? Jennifer is back. Yeah, I have to say that Jennifer Stoll, who's perhaps, let me just put it this way, among the deepest mystics and esotericists at Commonweal, a, a real wisdom holder in the cancer help program and for the community. But for many years, she hung out at the Philosopher's Stone oh, oh in San Francisco, which was a, a mystical uh, bookstore where she listened to the teachings of uh, some very deep yeah. occultist uh, teachers. And um, Jennifer is very familiar with everything that we're talking about. Yes. So that's a, a parenthesis, but a, mm -hmm. a deep bow to yeah. Jennifer Stoll for her, uh, her deep immersion in the subjects that we're discussing. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be useful to us um, just to talk about the seven shrines. Um, the first shrine is the earth, but perhaps you could walk us through the seven shrines so that we all know what you're talking about. Yeah. So these were, these were conceptions around most um, indigenous wisdom, had an earth-based um, tradition. And earth is the first principle around what incarnates, what comes into form, and how it gets shared. And it's, uh, I mean, profound how much of our civilization is of earth in terms of the things we make still to live from. But the principles of, well, of language, the earliest language were from the mineral stones that spoke, frequencies. So everything has a quality of vibrational intelligence that emits sound, and people heard that. So the entire universe of creation and everything, it was harmonics, and the harmony of the spheres, as this was called in philosophy. And in moving from the earth to water, the, 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 the alchemical process in the psyche or the, the, the birth of feeling to be able then to prepare oneself to move through another cycle of development. So earth, water, and then fire. And then earth is the first shrine. Earth is the first shrine. Water is water the second. second shrine. Fire is third. third. And um, I use the West African system, cosmology, mineral is the fourth. Mineral? Uh, uh, no, so nature and then mineral. So nature would be uh, all the, the, what's constituted as the life field. Nature being the fifth. Yes. And then blood is the and sixth. And then blood is the sixth, yes. And then faith is the seventh. Well, faith, yes, is, is, is the the activity that comes from our blood. So at this stage of 
the, the blood carries the organism for the ego. So our ego, which is the last of our own substance of consciousness to come into, come into being, is housed in the blood. And when we strengthen our, our will, the blood becomes pure. I mean, the blood takes on intelligences more from the future and not just from our genetics. Hmm. And so we attract light. That light then creates an etherization process, an activation that brings the human intelligence to the psychical level. It overrides the mind form. And then the psychic level is we are in communication with the realm of beings. The seventh shrine is the human experience born out of sacrifice. It is what I recover of myself when no outer resources can be reached, and I am therefore left to decide for what should be, what I must give, and who, and who and what I am as a human being. I am free not because of what is or is not happening, but I am free by the nature of being human. My nature carries within it the predisposition to begin. Faith is the decision to begin to act as if my choice provides the seed for what will be. I permit myself to be the host of a future that is free, that can be created only by those who decide for it. Because of the way the future comes to human beings, it cannot be oppressed it arrives as grace, a free space, a world of possibility into which I must decide. What I po posit into the world of consciousness we call the future. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the consciousness soul level where I'm not depending upon a prior conception that the... You know, here's the grammar, and, and it, it's, it's not mine. This was attributed to Christ, to Jesus. He was asked, are you, you know, such and such reincarnated? And he said, no. Before Adam was, I am. If I am before anything was, like Langston Hughes says in the poem, I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than my own existence. Where can I only know that from? The soul. We have recovered a knowledge that I am before everything was. That's what we're looking for in the stars. We've reached an age in which the star wisdom has come back to us by way of technology. But the metaphysics have been within the Western mind tradition, initiation traditions, in the Eastern meditation traditions, in all philosophical schools and in all animistic schools. All rituals have explored the earth, water, fire, air. We have the 12 forms of intelligences that can put the world back together. We are here. But we have to get the one thing that was corrupted, 
the agreement of let there be light. Hmm. If only a few people can say let there be money, and everyone else has to struggle for the conception of a higher purpose. Mm-mm. Let's go quiet for a moment together. I hope and trust that many of you, if not all of you, can feel the quality of the energy that we're creating together. And this is what is so precious to me in the Cancer Help Program, is that we create this quality of energy where um, our true purpose uh, is allowed to emerge. And that true purpose is very unique to each of us. There's something happening for me, for you, for each of us, And yet we can only create this together in community. We can only create this space where our own unfoldment is possible when we have this place together. So I invite you in the uh, 45 minutes that we have left to speak from this place in ourselves. Let's speak with the sense of intention to strengthen this space that Orland was simply talking of. And I invite you to simply hold the profound preciousness of this, of this time together, the profound preciousness of what is happening in this room. So I just open it up. Actually, I want to ask Jennifer Stoll, uh, who uh, is deeply engaged with these questions, if she would offer us a reflection. I feel blessed to say beyond words at the moment. Um, Yes, the preciousness of this time, beyond words. And I feel called to appreciate, Orland, your earlier conversation we've had and in other contexts, your work around no more secrets about these teachings. Um, Because so much of what even I learned was so much was kept close to heart and not in words. And the evolution of that is so important for this time and the way you give it to, bestow it upon all of us. Other, others? I'm wondering how what you talked about before, how so much has been forgotten, forgotten. And when you went through the shrines, I was, I almost got the sense that we have faith in money, but we don't have faith in light. And which it's, you know, the Bible starts that light was one of the first things that was created. And somewhere along the way it got lost. And I'm, I'm trying to understand, is the seventh shrine, the faith in light, is that yet to be discovered? Is that something that has never been part of this earth? Or is this something that once was known and got lost? And then I'm curious, was it the rest of the Bible that caused it to be lost? Like, how, does, how do you lose something like that? <laughs> you know, the whole world now is being challenged. The faith in money has not changed. Maybe it is being chipped away. But how do you lose something like that? 
how do you lose this connection between the worlds? Yeah. I mean, is it the enlightenment? Is it monotheism? It's like, where, where, where along the way did the human brain change that we could not see the source? Anna, yeah. could you repeat the question? That would be yes. Right. Where along the way, the power of Genesis, the power to say, let there be light, and light was, where along the way did we lose it? What happened to our way of being and life that caused the light to depart? The light entered into the deepest, deepest darkness that was not in the world, but in the human being. <clears throat> it hid itself in us for the purpose that we have to choose each other as light. There's in a, in the initiation in the last 2,000 years was about the human being, specifically the human being. That the logos, the idea of the logos, that what makes the word meaningful had to come away from the text into speech. It had to become hosted by the human being that knows what I'm speaking is true, not because I'm saying it, but because you are hearing it. I have to trust your capacity to agree and allow light to be with us, love to be with us. So the deity stopped giving us stuff just because we wanted it. They ask us then, if you want fire, which we've gotten before, we, we have all kinds of knowledge we've gotten. And they're accompanying us to all these different thresholds and we've corrupted every age. The last age was like, unless you agree, there's nothing more to get. This is their wisdom. Unless two or more human beings agree, there's nothing more to get. Because we've inherited tremendous amounts of powers. And this is really what happened. <clears throat> we start lying to each other about what we have. That's the basic truth of it. We start wanting what others have and not appreciate the fact that we could support creating. So conquest became how people got light and power and money. Before that, it was cultivating the shrines. The earth give all the wealth that we're now stealing from each other. It's still the earth. We're still conquering nations. It's still the earth. We're still diverting rivers and water. It's still the water shrine. We've gone all the way in which we're dropping nuclear weapons on people. That's still, that was fire. That was to, end, that was to create science. For, for preservation of and elevating the elementals from just being perception to higher cognition.
all the shrines were corrupted and our own ancestors in us were corrupted. We stopped listening to them and that this body is just mine to do with and all the codes, all the signatures of the ancestors in us. This is a 2,000 years plus. It is not, you know, Buddha warned us. Prepared, prepare for a higher contemplative mind, not a mind of self-interest. So by the time the, the, the archetypes poured the power of the word into the human being directly, we had already started a different path. And that was, that was a saving, that was a kind of sacrifice from these higher worlds to put a higher power in, in us Unless we agree, we can't, two or more, we can't get it. It's, it's not for the individual. That individually, we can become a group. Like, let me say, each person could be a group of 12 in the higher knowledge of initiation, meaning the 12 spiritual schools that were always on earth, could be in the mind. And because the soul knows it. But the, the principle that brings it in is love. Unless we love each other, we can't have our own inheritance. That we can't possess this earth without it. That we want to fix this world technologically, it's not going to happen. The last fire that made that possible, we exploited it, the atom. We've gone all the way to where we split the atom. I mean, how much more ridiculous can we go? Fusion, cold fusion, is in the mitochondria of the human blood. We produce more energy in our blood and on the sun. But it's cold fusion. It goes nowhere because we don't know what to do with it yet. Hmm. That was one of my early high school theses. It's crazy, John. I, I can't tell you where these things come. But in a way, they hid, they, even the ancient Greeks, they, 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 got, they hid things in the human stories, we call myths, they hid it in us. Alice Bailey wrote the, the Twelve Labors of Hercules to try to help us recover the Twelve. How many more teachings do we want? We have the 12 for a long time. We have the seven for a long, whatever number, the nine, the 12, the, you know, the rishis. We've had all the numbers of beings in all configurations to help us do the one thing, dedicate our will towards each other. Because what Kredomutwa shared about the, the different disruptions of planetary ecologies in the past, Atlantis and others, 
is that we had access to, to the intelligence of very, very high archetypal beings. One can say archangels and even above, whatever we want to call them, but creative powers. And they give human beings power to move matter, to create out of nothing. And we still want more. So the Piscean age, the age that we've just completing, had to be about different kinds of initiation that um, put us, the entire group, at risk. And see who's going to try to return to the virtue of service for the whole. Who will stop the revenge and the retaliation and... Uh, but actually, who would make love the currency to bring planetary integrity? I don't know if I answered your question. I said a whole lot of stuff. I was saying that when you were describing the light that's created when two humans see each other, and there's a story, I think it's in the Talmud. It's, it's Rabbi Pinchas of Koretz. Rabbi Pinchas of Koretz said mm -hmm. that when two human meets, meet, an angel is born. Mm -hmm. Out of their combined life. Wow, yeah. It's my rabbinic counsel. <laughs> well, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for bringing all the teachers and all the uh, sharings, uh, credo mutua, yeah. uh, into the room and the vibration that Michael talked about. You mentioned earlier that your grandmother uh, was a um, um, was part of the tradition of women who delivered. Um, My great aunt. Great aunt, yeah. and and that um, was it. A grandfather who was a diviner, water diviner. I'm thinking about those roles as both archetypal but also practical roles of, of moving matter, what you just said, um, in terms of, um, is it imagining new life, uh, in terms of the, the roles we get, we all are assigned, but that we've forgotten, and we have these roles and responsibilities that... Uh, that you mentioned earlier that in a, you know we've forgotten these things. It, it, it was the role partially of uh, Africans coming here to remind us and to bring something deeper forward. And I, I wonder if that's a collective archetype that we are to, to fulfill. I, I don't know if I'm, uh, to, to bring that imagination that you're talking about. To, to go as far as we can now, that that's our responsibility. Just like a diviner or just like a midwife brings something uh, forward. Yeah. Can you repeat the question? Uh, yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it clear what I'm asking? 
if I I'm tracking a few things. One being the initiation process of Africans coming to the Americas. Yes. What is what is hidden in that as a collective potential? Or not so hidden. Or not so hidden. Yeah. yeah. Opportunities are not always for us. Like right? so, things come up in the world of possibilities, and we think, "Wow, that could I could make that mine." Right. So, migration, soul migration is happening now, where people want to be in certain places because the earth is trying to balance psyche, not budgets and all of that. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Orlin Bishop and host Michael Lerner. After this, during the Second World War, in conclusion of the Second War and the founding of the United Nations, there are councils that met in different hemispheres, different continents, about the prophecies that are to be established in the world. Councils for the prophecies. They met in every continent because they knew the risk of going further without that. United Nations was built on the principle that human rights will restore human development, human development will restore human initiation. And so they were all part of this. The Theosophical Movement were part of training the diplomats around futures, not just politics. What is lost in all of this is the fact that we never were able to establish the development path for the human being. Because the institutions that were established were politically motivated and still are. We're still governed by a politics that is about scarcity and it's about self-separation, the same forces that cause the loss of 2,000 years of human dignity and wisdom. So there were initiates within the founding of the United Nations that, that met to craft. So the human rights are not really just about rights and privileges. It's about something pointing towards the agreement potential for lifting the vibrancy of the earth out of this old historical tragedy. War is still not only fought for material stuff, they fought over protecting the spiritual knowledge that's in the world. Who has the right to carry it and keep it in their libraries and all of that? <laughs> this, yeah, there's spiritual, there's spiritual warfare around what should be taught to human beings. And Part of, part of the collective effort, I think it's in many, many, many traditions, that the esoteric knowledge will again become known, but from another dimension. 
And so it came in a lot through the arts. So all music has codes, exoteric codes in them that has prepared the soul to enter into harmonic vibrancies with each other. You don't have to interpret anything, you feel it. And those, that music has actually prepared a way for another kind of science. So the opportunity has been uh, distributed. What we're asking for is civil engagement of it. Moving away from the political and just the economic engagement only as the organizing principle of our world to going to the civil engagement. Mutual respect for life. And we'll find how to move forward. It's, it's the, the life realm is not only biological. It's in the light. So every time the sun comes up, it, it gives to our blood qualities, qualities to remember. And if the mitochondria could organize itself, we'll remember a super consciousness. But we have to be in proximity of trust, meaning we have to sense someone else's need because we can't do that just for ourselves. But people who have been in compassionate care with others know the feeling when their own blood is being activated or initiated because they're seeing someone leave the world. So hospice care has actually caused more of the future to come into the world. You know, all kinds of practices, that's really human to human. No big institution in between. I want to be sure that Orland's guests have opportunities to speak. So please, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Um, I've heard you ask the question, what is it that humans have lost that money is a substitute for? Is that how? And I'm wondering if you asked it, if you answered that question in the last part of the con the conversation, because I'm kind of feeling like I got a an answer to mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so I'm wondering because it sounds in my in my understanding of how we function with money, um, particularly in this culture, in God we trust is on the money, but the reality seems to be that it's in money that we trust. And so is it that what we lost was the faith in ourselves, in what was, has been deposited us in us that light that went deep into the darkness and now we're trying to use money to make that make money be the light mm -hmm. 
Yo, wow. <clears throat> so the question is, what, what is it that we have lost that money is a substitute for? And, um, well, the possibility of returning to the faith or the trust to reestablish unity with that source. We lost the light that money now substitutes, the capacity to cognize future, real future. We now sell things we call futures, but they're not on Wall Street, right? <laughs> we know that. And that we actually um, make investments in things that cause more harm than cause more light. The, the range of, of factors um, is that money goes mostly to the collective unconscious, the conception of it, because most people don't know what it is. And this is the thing about the creation of conceptions that we don't know, no longer know how to control them. They're, they're like thoughts that are out there and I have no way to know who thought it up because there's no honoring to say, I did it. No transparency of the light in who's causing the harm and why. No confessions, you know, even though there are a lot of churches around. The idea that the human karma will go somewhere else has been forgotten. The ancient rishis, rishis taught humanity what you sow, you reap. But it's not punishment. It's the fact that the substance of materialization can only come out of what you conceive. So it's not like I do wrong and then wrong comes back to me, is that if you don't think, nothing comes back to you. If you don't feel, nothing comes to you. If you don't will, nothing comes from you. Thinking, feeling, and willing is beauty, goodness, and truth in the moral sphere of intuition. So we say, Think light. Will feeling. Feel will. If we can put the intuitions back into our processes of beingness, we come back to where we say, let there be, and we create out of nothing. We haven't created out of nothing in a long time. We're just recycling a lot of stuff, mostly all baggage. And predictions that have already failed, because they would not produce light. So I think our, our, our um, I mean, everything is being called fake news and fake, you know, it's like we're substituting all the time for something other than the responsibility 
of integrity. To be human. This is a, the Aquarian age, as Dr. Lagant, is the age of humanity. It's an age in which the mystery of the human being will be revealed more and more because we've benefited from all the other realities of nature and look how much we have gained from that, but how much we have lost because of it. That's a great question because you've thought and talked a good deal about money and I love the word currency, you know, mm -hmm. currency. Yeah. But in your book, actually, you talk about the difference between the dollar and the euro right. and how the, uh, you might just say a few words about that distinction, why you see them as different forms of currency. Um, well, different agreements about yeah. the, the, the use of these currencies for the particular futures that they carry. The European Union created a currency to be able not to be dominated by the dollar, mm -hmm. which helped to build Europe after the Second mm -hmm. World War, but it was also to make sure that they don't stay under that duress of consciousness. So they created agreements within their own system um, to be able to adapt their culture to the currencies that provide the future. Now, different regions of the world are now caught catching up to that. Eastern Africa just created a currency for Rwanda and Kenya to look at that. South Africa was proposing something of the kind. Um, but the conception still remains the same. In, in most cases, it's still materially oriented. It is still not honoring the developmental requirement that the Human Rights Declaration mandated all governments to do, you are responsible for human development, which leads to human initiation. That you cannot withhold the knowledge that makes a person human from them. It's a total violation of... I mean, the nature of money is a very great mystery. Okay. And, uh, it, and currencies are basically agreements to hold something of value. Right. And when people stop holding the agreement, the currency no longer no, has less. value. So, it, yeah. and as you were saying, there we're at a moment when uh, you know no no global currency lasts forever. The dollar is actually overdue for a fall, and we're watching as the multipolar world emerges a whole series of other agreements being made by other groups. Mm -hmm. uh, and once the dollar falls, the United States will be in a very different place because we're the only country on earth who can just print money. Uh, to pay our bills uh, with no regard for the consequences yeah. until it catches up with us. Yeah. And we're getting yeah. very close to that point. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, please. I'm kind of nervous, but... <laughs> Brother Orlin, um, as your sister in the Aquarian Beloved community, I wanted to thank you. I wanted to thank you for your service. I wanted to thank you for what you've done for the beloved community, and what you've done for us. And your book, your book, I've read it five times. And I know each time I get another layer of meaning. And what I'm wondering is, the way, you, the way it flows, the evocative nature of it, you came about through gnosis, using gnosis to bring those layers to your book. That's my question. 
Yes. Beautiful question. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you for the question, really, and mm-hmm. your presence here. Um, DJ Collins has been a friend and mentor, even though she doesn't know she has been the one who cared for Dr. Lagan's time in producing this work. You were, uh, you accompanied him for so many decades. And I think no one else knows him more intimately because of the time you've spent in um, helping him bring that work into the world. Mm. So it's really is an honor that you're here as we talk about this. And Magic, of course, you grew up in that bookshop and libraries and with all these amazing people who came there. Um, yeah, they, 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 it's a, it's, it's an integration of hermetic science, anthroposophical science, African gnosis, animism, um, esoteric Christianity. For me, those would be like the, the ones that holds the interaction that I have with the world now. Mm. In the more quiet, in, in a really turning place. Uh, we call cosmogenesis, and I mentioned it. In, it's love. It, it has nothing to do so much with any other conception. That if you love a person and you love a place and you love beings, certain communications happen effortlessly, even in silence. So for me, I, I, that, is, that is my work. To, to not want anything from another human being. Mm. How, how do, how, not want, to not say that someone else has something that is mine. No, there is no such reality. No one has anything that belongs to anyone else. And we have to stop the envy that was introduced to the human blood. A corruption. What was what attracted human beings to each other to create life and procreate life is now working against us. Mm. And we have to be very careful and put out, protect ourselves from ourselves. Because only at that level can I do harm to me. I can only, when me creating a chemistry that makes my feeling become so objectable to another human being. The very chemistry that was supposed to liberate us is now working against us. And my, when, I, when I started medicine and, you know, I tried to bring this over and over and, and like, love has nothing to do with medicine. Like, oh, what are you, are you out? These teachers couldn't get me. 
why I was invoking magic, the mystery in the chemistry of life itself. One of my papers weren't published because they had nothing to do with medicine. Mm. Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> now they're going to have to do with something else. Future sciences. Orlin, thank you. You had mentioned um, when we spoke briefly at lunch, Maladoma Somme. Mm -hmm. And I know you're speaking of teachers and all the people that have influenced your work. And I wonder if you would speak about him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Could you repeat the question? Yes, I, I, I mentioned different teachers in our sharing. And the question was about Maladoma Somme. Oh, yes. Great question. Who um, really was a great friend and mentor in African spiritual science mm -hmm. work. Yeah, I miss him a lot. He's been, um, he transitioned now a little over a year. Um, when I met him, he was writing the book of Water and the Spirit. And um, he gave me a copy before it was published and he said, uh, let me know what you think. And I said, I don't know how to think about this. This is like nothing I've ever read. Mm -hmm. um, we traveled together to Burkina Faso and uh, um, I remember him introducing me to his elders and I got to understand how precise their cognition was for putting the human being in touch with life. We call it life. It's just, it includes the ancestral world, but it's more than that. Um, we call it purpose now. But his purpose was so complex. As he said, to make friends with the stranger or the enemy, to move out of the very thing that protected him, he had to go into some of the most adversarial relationships to to navigate and explain African wisdom. Good, he was a literary person to the degree that he can write these books and people could hold, they hold them. But the ceremonial mind that he had was extraordinary. And there are times when he gets so silent and he would put his head down and the only thing left was to pick up the drum. And when he plays uh, djembe, like, well, what were we, like, you know, what was the problem before? You know, we couldn't, <laughs> he would just beat the drum and it's gone. A ritualist, he was so exact with, with a form of intelligence that can only be expressed that way. And We'll be in ceremony and they play for six, eight hours without stopping. Like, phenomenal. I have to also mention Sabunfu in the context. Because I met them both uh, around the same time. And her, her, um, her wisdom as a host for ceremonial magic to, to, to put something into a catalyst, you know. 
She knew how to start that fire, the ceremonial fire. And so what we see in the context of these great teachers, it's almost there as like an everyday life in some, in some context. This is how people live in some parts of Africa still. And what they brought with them in the Middle Passage and what's been distributed in, in many places as shrines around the world. New Orleans, Madame Laveau, Marie Laveau create, recreated what was hidden in the Congo. And her grave in New Orleans is still the, one of the most visited earth shrines in the United States because they don't think she is gone from the realm. And she mentored many others who took geomancy and, and working with the earth meridians and influencing weather and climate. Uh, you know, we should have, you know, documented a lot of her work. So uh, Dr. Lagarde connected to Madame Marie Laveau, uh, Malcolm, um, Martin Luther King, Marcus Garvey, others who were responsible for the group intelligence that reconstructed the different levels of Gnosis that um, after the reconstruction period flourish and created. But yes, uh, thanks for bringing Maladoma and Subonfu to us again. Yeah, they both will be missed deeply. Thank you for that wonderful question. Yeah. Uh, we are at our agreement time. Again, thanks to all of you. Uh, for the quality of attention and intention, the energetic space. So if we can just go back into quiet for a moment. Peace, peace. Orland, thank you again so much. Yeah. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Orland Bishop and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.